Well, good morning. What a great day to be in the house of the Lord. Amen. Amen. Look at your neighbor and let them know you're glad they came to church one more time. Look at your second favorite neighbor and let them know you're glad they came to church. And that the last will be first. Amen. Amen. If you have your Bibles, open up to Philippians. That's where we're going to get to. Philippians uh, chapter 3. It's the chapter that we're going to be considering for the next few moments together. Philippians chapter 3, we're going to look at verse 17 to 21. Uh, My name is Russ. I get the honor of being the senior pastor here at Four Points Church. Um, The thing that I love about this faith family, and I mean those words not in a loose sense, um, I have experienced firsthand uh, the word family here. Uh, I have experienced when the scriptures say that there is a friend that sits closer than a brother. I've experienced that here. Um, I love that text. It essentially says your family has to put up with you, your blood family. Like your mama doesn't get a choice. Like she's going to deal with you. Uh, But there are a few times in your life where God surrounds you with a few people that choose to be around you. They show up when they don't have to show up. And I'm grateful for this community because you, over the last two years for my family, in various ways have done that for us. And we've firsthand experienced being leased and lost, not knowing where we were going or what we were doing whenever we moved back to South Carolina. We've experienced lonely. uh, And the mission of this church, which embodies that statement, has in various ways shown up in my life and ministered to me and prayed for me and loved me and encouraged me and walked with me whenever I was in those categories, stages, and seasons of life. For 12 years, God has been good to us as a church. He's taken this small group on 290 and brought us down to 101, and he has set up shop, and he has given us moment after moment where our awe and jaws have been on the floor at what he has done. He's moved mountains He's endured us through suffering. Uh, He's been there for every tear and sorrow and dark night of the soul. And he's given us a lot of mountaintops that in 12 years we can still look back to and point to as the faithful reminder of the power and the goodness of God. And I, I, I humbly get the opportunity on our 12th anniversary to, for a brief moment, uh, encourage and remind you Uh, who call yourself a part of this church, and more importantly, call yourself followers of this guy named Jesus, about an identity that you have been given, and about an urgency that you and I have to embrace that identity and that mission that comes with it, to be the people of God that he has called us to be for this period of history. You see, there, there is a real moment where we're no longer going to try to describe God through the scriptures and through the words of people. But there is a real moment where you and I will see God. In all of his glory, not veiled or concealed in any way, your faith will be made sight. And that is a moment for many of you in the near History And for all of us, we don't know if it's in the next moments of history when we will stand before God and that will be our reality. That moment, for some reason, keeps me up at night from time to time. 
it makes me look at my life and the time on this earth a little bit differently. Knowing that I'm going to stand before my creator and knowing that I'm going to be received not because of anything that I've achieved on earth, but by the grace of God, I've been given the opportunity to represent him on earth. It it, it changes the way that I look at stuff. I've been through hardships before I met Jesus, but the way that I endure hardships now that I've met Jesus changes because I'm going to stand before him. I've been through joyful moments before I met Jesus, but the way that I look at and value those joyful moments have changed because I know there's going to be a moment of significant eternal joy whenever I stand before Jesus. I don't know if you've ever been caught up in this idea, but if we believe what the scriptures are teaching us, family, there is a real moment in the not-so-distant future where we're really going to see Jesus. And I'm just wondering if anybody has ever been captivated by the thought that that is something that is going to be a reality for you one day. And, and, and I'm wondering, is anyone in the house motivated, challenged, uh, encouraged, drawn to action, drawn to sacrifice, drawn, drawn up and stirred in their spirit, thinking about the fact that what we do now gets to echo the that moment that is to come in the not-so-distant future then. Jesus' disciples uh, didn't get most of life right, and I relate to them because of that. I've learned more through failure than I've learned through a classroom. And uh, by the grace of God, I find that I keep failing forward, and I don't know how it keeps happening. They they come to Jesus with perhaps one of the most authentic moments of their life. They're Jewish boys. They've been raised in the synagogue, at least on, you know, major holidays. And they they, they know something's off. They, They know that when Jesus prays, it's different. But they don't know how to pray. And so they come to him and they go, Rabbi, teach us how to pray. I don't know how to do what you're doing, and I need your help. A lot of us, we're we're afraid that there's a lot of stuff that we think the preacher knows or that Christians know that we ought to know, and we don't, and we're we're afraid to ask the question. We're afraid to bring up the fact that, that, let's be honest, a lot of our life when it comes to walking this Christian thing out, for a good bit of it, we, we often are lost. We often are like, I don't really know what I'm doing. I think this is what you want me to do. I think this is how you, like, don't burn me if I do it wrong, Lord. You know, I, I, that, that's where a lot of us spend more of our time than not. And Jesus says, well, this is the way you should pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, holy or hallowed, if you grew up on the KJV, is your name. And then this line comes, for the believer on earth, in time. Your kingdom come. And your will be done. Not in eternity. Not when you come to make everything right. But on as it is in heaven. You see, Jesus came to bring and inaugurate a kingdom. Before he ever preached a word, John went ahead of him and said, the kingdom of God is at hand. 
And what I want to remind you of from the book of Philippians is that you and I are the agents of the answer to that prayer. That God, through the Spirit in you, is bringing a kingdom to earth that is invading, that is different, that looks at the vices of the world, meekness and humility, and calls them virtues of the kingdom. You see, you and I may wear a flag of a country that we have an allegiance to on our shirts, but if you are a follower of God, we have a kingdom that we have an allegiance to before we've ever had an allegiance to a country. And we get a moment in history to live as citizens representing that kingdom. Here's the problem. It is so easy to act like we're citizens of the kingdom that came before we ever met Jesus. And it's so easy to live like citizens that live like they live in the kingdom before they ever met Jesus because it's so familiar to us. So the Apostle Paul encourages, reminds the church of their identity in Philippians chapter 3. And I want to take a few moments and remind you, if you are a follower of Jesus, of your identity. Philippians chapter 3, verse 17, it says this, Dear brothers and sisters, pattern your lives after mine and learn from those who follow our example. What a scary opening line to the text that we're reading today. Paul says, if you want to look like a Christian, if you want to live like a Christian, then you can pattern your life after mine, after, after his, not, not me, his. It scares me, and you're gonna, I'm going to tell you why. It scares me to say those words out loud. P- pattern your lives after mine and those who follow our example, and, and you'll be walking in the way of Jesus. It'll look like Jesus. Now, I want you to consider either the arrogance or the, the inability that I and maybe you can struggle with in being able to say a line like that. Consider the idea of looking at someone and they're like, how, how can you be Christian? And you look at them and say, pattern your life after. How many of you will be comfortable with prescribing that advice to your coworkers? How many of you, just looking for hands, would be comfortable prescribing that advice to your children. If you pattern your, your day, your agenda, your use of time, your, your words, your thoughts, your actions, if you pattern them after me, who is patterning their life after Christ, you're, you're going to be more like Jesus. This is a verse that scares me to death. I'm comfortable because Paul is old and dead and we've like wrote the word saint in front of his name with saying, pattern your life like Paul. But what I'm not comfortable with is looking at you and saying, pattern your life after me. And as I sat at my desk, I I really began to wrestle with why. Why? Why does this scare me so much? The idea of giving this advice out, why does it scare me so much, and it should scare you. And if you think I'm not scared, then, then that's arrogance probably more times than not. Or, man, the Lord's really got a hold of you in some me- measurable way. But, but here's why it scares me. Number one, it scares me because I believe that to be mimicable, I have to be perfect. 
And Christianity and what Paul is saying is not, I am perfect, therefore mimic me. It's actually quite the opposite. Like if you go over to Romans chapter 7, the famous text that will tongue-tie a southerner up in knots, Paul trying to describe the, the folly and the hypocrisy and the stumbling forward that he's doing says this in Romans chapter 7, verses 5 to 11. It says, when, when we were controlled by our own nature, sinful desires were at work within us, and the law aroused those evil desires that produced a harvest of sinful deeds resulting in death. But now, uh, we have been released from the law, for we died to it, and they are no longer captive to its power. Now we can serve God. Not in the old way of obeying the letter of the law, but in the new way of living in the... Religious people don't like that line. Because it's, not, it's not a... What I mean by religious, is it's not like, here's ten rules and you'll be fine. That's not Christianity. Christianity is not like, well, here, just read Leviticus and, and read, read the Ten Commandments and follow the law and, and don't eat these things. And it, it, it's, it's submit your whole self... To the Spirit. It's take up your cross daily and follow me. It's abide in Christ and I and you, for apart from him you can do nothing. You see, see, the, the Christian life is not we're aiming for a law. The Christian life is we're aiming for a surrender. In every moment and in every day and in every season and in every circumstance and every situation, it's about a surrender, not the aim of a law or a picture of perfection that will still be imperfect because we drew it up. We aim for surrender. Now we can serve God, not by the old way of being the law, but in the new way of living by the Spirit. God's law reveals our sin. Well then, since that's true, am I suggesting that the law of God is sinful? Of course not. In fact, it was the law that showed me my sin. I would never have known that coveting is wrong if the law had not said you must not covet. Now this is Paul not saying y'all covet. This is Paul saying I covet. Look at the next part of the text. But sin used this command to arouse all kinds of covetous desires within me. If there were no law, sin would not have that power. At one time, I lived without understanding the law. But when I learned the command not to covet, for instance, the power of sin came to life. And I died. So I discovered that the law's commands, which were supposed to bring life, brought spiritual death instead. Many of you feel like a failure because you don't know the spirit, but you know the law. You know that you're, in your own actions, always going to be short and imperfect, but you don't know that by the Spirit of God you are being made perfect. So instead of drawing close to God, you're always coming close when you feel like you're obeying enough to be near, and you're withdrawn whenever you feel like you're obeying, disobeying too much to come close. It's a cyclical thing that I watch happen in church. So I discovered that the law's commands, which were supposed to bring life, brought spiritual death. Instead, sin took advantage of those commands and deceived me. It used the commands to kill me. But still, the law itself is holy, and its commands are holy and right and good. Now, here's what I love about the NLT. It makes that make sense a lot more than, for the things that I wish I did do, I do not do, and the things I wish I did not do, I continue to do. I don't understand why I do the things I continue to do whenever I don't want to do the things that I continue to do. But I can empathize with the idea that I understand that there's a lot of things that I should do that I don't do, and I don't know why I don't do them, and I want to do them, and I wake up with the intentions of doing them, but then I go into Walmart with the intentions of honoring God. I leave with canned cheese, bad decisions, and a couple of curse words that came out of my mouth, and things aren't going well. Can you empathize? Here's what I learned a long time ago. 
I thought in order to be mimical, you had to be perfect. And then I started reading the story of David. And he got the label man after God's own heart. And he's in a murdering, adulterer, per, adulterous person. And I've never committed either. Some of y'all are worried about the murder part, I know. <laughs> so how can he be a man after God's own heart if he's an imperfect person? And as I began to read the Bible and, and pray upon that idea, I began to discover that every time he fell, he ran at God instead of from God. And it made me begin to think that, that maybe the point wasn't that you and I, in order to be mimical, would be perfect followers of God. It would be that we are imperfect people who, by the grace of God, continue to run at him instead of from him, which is why Paul, an imperfect person, could look at a church that's pretty imperfect and messed up in myriads of ways and say, hey, mimic me because here's what's going to happen. I'm going to screw it up, and when I screw it up, I'm going to run at God. <laughs> And I'm not going to cover it up, and I'm not going to act like it didn't happen, and I'm not going to minimize it and try and put weeks between me and when it happened, whenever I go forward for prayer at the church. No, it might have happened last night. The uh, sheets of sin still may be hot from what happened in that moment, but in the moment of conviction, whenever I come to out of the sinful nature, not excusing what I've done, not dismissing its sinful nature and the need for it to be put behind me and put to death, I'm going to run to God because his veins have been opened, his blood is sufficient. His sacrifice was enough so that I can run to him in the worst moments and not just the best moments of my life. Therefore, Paul, being an imperfect person, could look at a group of people that were imperfect and say, mimic me. That verse scares me, number one, because I used to believe that you had to be perfect in order to be mimical. But number two, the second thing that scared me about that verse is because more days than not, if I'm being honest with you as your pastor, I can admit that I live in partial commitment to Christ. Now that I know that I, in my imperfection, can run at God and be mimicable because that's what the Christian life is, it's a surrender to God, I've now discovered a second problem with this verse and me applying it and saying to you, mimic me as I mimic Christ. And that is that there are some days where I just don't feel like taking up my cross and following Jesus. There are some days where I like my sin more than I like God. And so instead of God's kingdom coming, I'm all about Russ's kingdom coming. My comfort, my way, my will... So it's hard for me to look at you and say, mimic me as I mimic the Lord because I know that there are a lot of days where I'm mimicking the devil because I'm rebelling against the Lord. And the way revival breaks out is when a people that recognize the inconsistencies of their life, the shortcomings, the way that they continue in various ways to half-heartedly, half in devotion, take up the cross, die to themselves and follow Jesus. They recognize that and they repent and they turn back to the Lord and revival breaks out because the Lord's favorite act of worship is bent knees in surrender to him, declaring a dependency upon him. In Galatians 2.20, the Apostle Paul says this, my old self has been, you don't survive crucifixions. That means you don't, you don't bring remnants with you. There's what you were, there's what you've become, there's what you're becoming in Christ Jesus. My old self's been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. Think about it. This is the mantra of the Christian life. There's who I was, there's what I lived for, there's what I aimed after pre-Jesus, then I really met Jesus. Not I went to church, not I started going to a Bible study. I'm talking you met Jesus. And there's a lot of you in the room, you know the difference. I grew up 
hearing about Jesus, talking about Jesus, going to places where they were pretty infatuated with Jesus, met people that were in love with Jesus, but there was a significant difference between the Bible facts I had memorized in Awana classes and the relationship that started when I was 19 years of age when Jesus stepped into my life, filled me with his spirit, and changed my entire identity, future, and destiny in a moment. There's a significant difference. Significant difference. I no longer live. Uh, it wasn't no, no longer a question of God, what do you, uh, what do you want? Let me consider it. it. It was God, it's yours. I have received by grace through faith all of you in exchange. I give you all of. There's some R&B singer. I hear he's a legend. He sang a song about this idea. He didn't know it's about the Lord. He thought it was about a girl. All of you loves all of me. Hmm. All your curves and imperfections. Y'all laughing. He loved you in all your curves and imperfections. I mean, let's just be honest. I doubt John's loved her in all her curves and imperfections every day. Some days it was probably more of a dripping faucet, but God loved her in all her curves and imperfections. Oh, some of y'all ain't ready for where we're going. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. All right, mimic me. You are here to be mimicked. Like, like God filled you with his spirit so that you would be mimicked. Christian. It's to be mimicable. And, and part of being mimicable today is recognizing, man, I, I am partially committed apathetically indifferent to God's kingdom announcement and kingdom agenda and kingdom purpose and, 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 and you being mimical today is running in repentance to God and going, God, take all of me. I'm sorry that I've taken back what you have died to redeem, what you have died to restore, what you have died to transform. So God, all of me, everything, everything, God, you can have it, right? But if you're a Christian, be mimical. Verse 18, look at what he goes on to say. We're only in the second verse. Tell pastor he's got to hurry up. Verse 18, it says this, For I have told you often before, and I say it again with tears in my eyes, that there are many whose conduct shows that they are really enemies of the cross of Christ. Okay, let's be careful here. Because it's easy to prioritize law being proof of relationship instead of relationship leading you into the fulfillment of the law. You see, there's a, there's a, it's, it's a slight difference, but it's relationship with God by the Spirit of God that leads us into obedience. And for a lot of people, they, they look at the fruit of their life, and they're like, well, I'm just in a bad season. But here's the problem. If the fruit on the branch is not the fruit of the Spirit, then you're abiding in something in the root that's giving you the fruit that's not of God. So you can't look at the fruit and go, well, it's just a season. No, you've got to look at the root and go, what are you abiding in? For a lot of you, the problem is at the root, 
it's still rooted in the world and not in the kingdom. And as a result, kingdom fruit isn't on the branch. And it's not because the preacher ain't preaching good. And it's not because the church didn't love you good. It's because ultimately, at the end of the day, you were looking for someone else to live out the Christian life for you and to give you their fruit. And you don't have any on your own branch because you've not learned to abide yourself. So the preacher doesn't gossip, but you do. So those Christians may not slander, but let's be honest, a lot of them do, but you do. So th- th- this is the, the challenge. The fruit speaks to the root. And if the fruit's bad, then likely what you are abiding in is bad. Verse 19, we'll move off that because I've been preaching that recently. They are headed for destruction. Their God is their appetite. They brag about shameful things. And they think only about this life here on earth. Okay, so there's a group in every church. You need to know there's four things that the Bible teaches. There's four things. You'll see this throughout the text. I I can walk through the book of John and show you. There's sheep, goats, wolves, and shepherds. Every church has sheep, goats, wolves, and shepherds. This is the terminology that Jesus used, so we'll we'll run with it. We're not going to try and fix it. I know that a lot of you didn't come from an agrarian culture, like farming and like handling, shepherding, that kind of stuff. But sheep, goats, wolves, and shepherds. What, What are sheep, goats, wolves, and shepherds? Being quick about it, sheep are are repentant followers of Jesus Christ who by the blood of Jesus and the sacrifice of Christ have been made a new creation and they are regenerated new followers of Jesus. What are goats? Goats are religious people who want to look the part of being Christian without the transformation of being Christian so they know how to clean out the life outwardly but inwardly the life is still in filth. You encourage, admonish, and rebuke and correct a sheep you rebuke harshly a goat. But there's a third thing called a wolf in every church. What do wolves do? Well, they're, whether they recognize it or not, under the assignment of the enemy to go and sow seeds of division within the body. So they just want to cast doubt on anything God does so that no one ever is confident in the work of God. Usually they try to devour the leadership within a church which the leadership in the church is held to a high standard and at times needs to be rebuked themselves because the leadership is nothing more than cheap. But you got to be careful because if Peter can stand by Jesus and hear the words, get behind me, then what makes you think in a church that at times you can't be used by Satan to do the same stuff? Sheep, goats, wolves, and there's shepherds. What are shepherds? Well, we have a good shepherd. He's our high priest. He's the one that stands between us and the Father. He's the one, according to Romans, that when we don't know what to pray, he is whispering in the ear of the Father things that we don't even know to articulate, that we can't get out beyond a groan. (laughs) It's beautiful. And in his church, Timothy sets this up, or Paul sets this up for Timothy in the church of Ephesus, you have a structure where you have under-shepherds who serve the good shepherd, not as the ultimate shepherd, but as a good one that represents Jesus, that honors Jesus, and lovingly cares for the people that Jesus loves. Now, now the, the reason I bring all of that up to you is that if we are kingdom citizens, there are markers of us being sheep, And if we're not, there's markers of us being goats and wolves. And they're all in verse 19. There's three of them, and I'll go through them very quickly. The first one is, their God is their appetite. And I'm not just talking about what they physically want to eat. That's not what the text is suggesting alone. It's suggesting they're headed for destruction because their God's their appetite. It's they desire it in the flesh, so they 
overlook scripture, dismiss and edit it. We'll, we'll look past it and say, I'll follow everything but that area of scripture. And, and this, this is going on in the world right now where uh, we're in an era, and I heard this this week twice, which makes me know that this is a common thing from people 25 and under, where they said, essentially, I like God, but I'm not taking ethical advice from a 2,000-year-old book. Let me explain to you what that is. That's verse 19, part A. I desire things that the Bible says are not okay. Therefore, I like the idea of a God who has grace and mercy for me, but not one who would call me to take up my cross and follow him and die to the desires that don't align with his call on my life. So I'm going to live in partial, half-hearted devotion and commitment to God, which is not Christianity. So I see it, I want it, I desire it. The Bible says don't do it, but his grace is enough, so let's go for it. And over history, when the sufficiency of the word of God when the accuracy of the word of God, amen for the Bible study going on in the pew, <laughs> comes into question by people who want to edit it instead of proclaim it, what you get is a soft church with no backbone and no grit to stand in a culture that wants to run from God and not hear the gospel of God, but is in desperate need of the light that comes from him through the reading and hearing of the word through the people of God by the spirit of God in them. Their God is their appetite. Here's what's dangerous. You and I have a way of recognizing good things in different stuff. But our recognition of good is not the bottom line of what is good and bad. Eve looked at the tree in Genesis chapter 3, and it was good to the eye. Here's what's scary about it. She looked at it and saw goodness in it, in her reasoning. But God said it wasn't good. And so she's faced with the dilemma that you and I are faced with. If we see good and something that God says is not good, are we right and God's wrong, or is God right and we're wrong? And, and when we play it out this way, it gets really simple, doesn't it? But in reality, for a lot of us, we are dominated by the desires of our flesh. We want it, we consume it, and we just hope God's good with it. Desire untracked unchecked by truth will always lead to brokenness, bondage, and emptiness. So here's my question. What checks the desires in your life? To what authority do you genuinely defer to in the decisions that you make? What filters and tests the things that your eye says and desires and calls good as being good to the eye or good to God? It may be good to the eye, but is it good to God? I get, I get right now in your life, there's a lot that you may think is good to the eye. My question is, is it good to God? You, you've been created to be kingdom citizens of God. And for many of you, you've drifted because your eyes calling things good that God says are not good. What else do they do? Look at it with me. It says, they brag about shameful things. It's not even something that they try to hide or conceal anymore. It's out there in the open. This is what we do. We do it because we want to do it. We do it when we want to do it. 
And unfortunately, I don't have to take much time to explain to you or show to you examples of people celebrating the delinquency that the Bible calls bad. Most downtown revitalizations involve some kind of large drinking hall now where many people, past the point of moderation, uh, drink themselves silly on a frequent basis to cope with things that they have not taken before God, hoping that alcohol and the spirits will work out for them. And the Bible's clear about that. I'm not going to make a stance or a statement about drunkenness and should you partake or should you not partake. But the Bible's very clear that drunkenness is the line. And if you do partake and if you become dependent on anything other than God, it's no longer good. Everything's permissible, but not everything is profitable. And there's a whole lot that you permiss in your life that's actually not profitable to the kingdom, citizenship, and call that you have on your life. And you know you're dependent upon it more than you're dependent upon God, but you don't want to repent of it because that would require you to depend on God at a level that you're uncomfortable with depending upon him. Basically, if you can't put it down and leave it, and it's not, if anything that's not named Jesus, if you can't put it down and leave it and never have it again, then it's become an idol in some way in your life and a codependent thing that you've depended upon to satisfy your soul in a way that you were meant to be satisfied before and in the presence of God. We don't like that. It's black and white. Welcome to church. Number three, the third thing it says in verse 19. They brag about shameful things. Their God is their appetite. And then the last thing, look at what it says in verse 19. I think this is incredible. They think only about... Remember the opening question of the sermon? How many of you are thinking about the fact that you're going to stand before God? If there's a real moment in time where you're going to see him in all of his glory and your faith is going to be made sight, how many of you have allowed that to motivate and a change and affect the way that... And here, here, here's the problem. For a lot of us, we're more on Kenny Chesney's plan of eternity than we are on. It's 5 o'clock somewhere. Everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to go right now. Right now. That's for over there. No, it's your kingdom come, your will be done. And here's the problem. That's through you, not in spite of you. Like the plan is not, God, around us, make your kingdom come and your will be done. Like, yeah, do things. Christ in you. Your kingdom come in me. Your will be done in me. And when Christ is in you and you're surrendered to him, you become an agent, a kingdom citizen that advances the picture of what is coming that is veiled in many ways but is coming on earth and to earth at the inauguration and the second coming of Christ. And you become a kingdom citizen that brings it. But for a lot of you, that doesn't. there's no thought of how you live today with what will matter in eternity. In fact, I go back to last year's worries and concerns. Mine were Clemson football. They still are here. Think about what you were paranoid about, the anxieties you had, the discontentment, the things that kept you up at night. Go back a decade ago to those things. And my, my question is, in light of eternity, are they still as significant as they have been in your life? I'm not saying they're insignificant, but are they significant when you get a view of eternity that begins to challenge you to look at a bigger picture than the moment that you are in? You see, my concern is that a lot of us are motivated to live a good life and the motivation is not a God life. And you've been called to live a God life, not just a good life. And I just want to remind you, saints, in Christ Jesus, 
on our 12th anniversary that we have been put on this earth to be mimicked. To be a people that are surrendered to God and the work of God in and through our lives to our neighbor. You see, a good life is good to the eye, to the world. A good life can pay the bills. A good life can retire. A a, a good life can eat where they want to eat, when they want to eat there, seven nights a week. A, A good life gets to have great hobbies that you give lots of devoted time to. A good life, you probably raise some good kids. You, you have a, a, a good group of people that are around. you got some good friends. There's, there's nothing necessarily or inherently wrong with a good life, but you've been called to more than just a good life. You, you've been called to a God life, a life that doesn't make sense apart from God, a life that doesn't is inexplainable to the world apart from God intervened and stepped in. He took my desires that may have been good worldly desires and he made them eternal, impacting, world-changing, uh, transformative things that he now is doing with my life and my time. And this is what Paul is concerned, that the church could get so consumed with having a good life that they miss out on a God life. And if I'm honest, If I'm honest, the way that churches move from being vibrant places where God is at work to museums that are just curating stories of things God did 10 and 20 and 30 years ago is we settle in for a good life and we stop pressing towards the God life. I want to live the God life. I want to live like Jesus lived. I want to do things that Jesus would lead me to do. I don't want to read about a move of God. I want to live a move of God on earth as it is in heaven. The Apostle Paul closes in verse 20 with these words of encouragement to the church. This is the identity and the reminder. But we are citizens of heaven. If you are in Christ Jesus, you have had a change of citizenship. We're citizens of heaven where the Lord Jesus Christ lives. That's our home. That's where we belong. Now, that that word citizens, we see the idea brought up in different texts. He brought it up in Philippians chapter 1 verse 27 when he reminded them in the beginning of his letter, above all you must live as citizens of heaven, conducting yourselves That's in the way that you act on or disregard desires. That's in the way that you look at and celebrate things that may be shameful to God, but celebrated by the world. That's in the way that you think about life on earth. We're, We're to, as citizens of heaven, conduct ourselves in a manner that is worthy of the good news about Christ. I have been made worthy by the blood of Jesus, not by the effort that I have drummed up in my life. But I want to know, I want to cherish the fact that Christ lives in me in a reverential way that takes my body, my hands, my eyes, my words, my thoughts, and affects them in a way knowing that I am a jar, a broken vessel that God has put his spirit in. And I get the joy 
Christ in That should change. It changes the way I live. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20, the word changes. It moves from citizens to now that you're on earth in Christ, we are Christ. Strong word. Paul speaking to the church in Corinthians says, God through us as his ambassadors is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. <laughs> Man, I love that word. Citizens, ambassadors. Ambassadors is an accredited diplomat sent by a country or a kingdom as its official representative to a foreign country. So what, what are we? We are ambassadors. Diplomats of the kingdom that is coming of the kingdom that is here on earth through his people bringing what's in heaven to earth as a surrender people walk in step with him we're we're ambassadors and where do ambassadors gather and where do they operate out of they gather in these things called embassies and 12 years into our story we've been renting from the world a place to have space to equip and send out ambassadors. Today, we take steps to set up an embassy, a space where for generations to come, my kids, your kids, your grandkids get to be equipped and reminded of their identity as citizens and saints in Christ Jesus so that they can be sent as his ambassadors, sent as his citizens, confident and rooted in Christ, bearing his fruit to the very ends of the earth and the call and his return as his people so that they can carry into the next generation your kingdom come, your will be done in and through us on earth as it is in heaven. So for those of you that call yourself a part of Four four Points, uh, this is a big moment because we have been given the opportunity in our generation to build some brick and mortar and space for the next generation and the generations that come after to be equipped for our community to know that there is an embassy of a kingdom that is not of this world on 101 on the corner of Barry Shoals where a group of people who live lives that are weird and different and they don't make sense have gathered together because they are a part of this kingdom that they talk about and this king that they live in surrender to and they are not like everybody else. They don't do it like everybody else does it. They're generous, they are meek, they are humble. Notice these are the kingdom values of God and not the values of humanity. This is the the work of God and not the work of us being good people for God. And and so if you are part of Four Points, we've been asking that you would pray about what God would have you do in part of this mission, this opportunity on our journey. And so the band's going to sing and we're going to look back at what God has done. And for those of you who came prepared, we would ask that you'd bring your pledge card and your best gift. 
your best offering and drop it in the buckets in front. If you'd like to pray before you give, you can do that in your seat or you could do that right here down front. But collectively, we believe that today is a day where we're gonna lay down the down payment and begin to clear the path for there to be a church. That's next door. So as they sing, let's stand, pray, and let's give. In Jesus' name.